Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Bruce Damer. He is the chief scientist of the Biota Institute. He's a research associate in biomolecular engineering at UC Santa Cruz. And he's an astrobiologist working on the science of life's origins and the future for sustainable paths for humanity. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Jim. I look forward to this conversation. Today, we're going to be talking to Bruce about origins of life, also known as abiogenesis. Regular listeners may remember that back in EP40, I talked with Eric Smith on the physics of living systems, including Eric's work on life's origin. So if this topic interests you, check out good old EP40. There's lots of good material on the biota.org website. And for those who want what I found to be able to get many different documents and sources that Bruce provided for me and that the Google turned up, I found one that was actually the best for my purposes. It's a paper titled The Hot Spring Hypothesis for an Origin of Life, co-authored with David Deemer. Now, Deemer and Damer are annoyingly close in the neural nets of my brain, but hey, that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. So uh, if people want to read more, they can check out that paper. And as always, you know, all the links we talk about will be on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. <laughs> So with that, let's hop into it. Let's start out with Earth. First, abiogenic, no life. What was the Earth like at 4 billion to 3.5 billion years ago? Well, Jim, it was a kind of a frightening place. If you walked out of a, a time portal, say, to 4.0 to 4.1 billion years ago, about the time the guesstimate is that life might have gotten started. That is, a few hundred million years after the moon collision event, the moon formation event, and then the oceans then rained out of the atmosphere, all this dense, you know, uh, most of the water coming from the cooling of magma. But after the collision that created the moon, it was all freaking boiling again. It was all magma again. And then the oceans rained out, and you had this planet which had immense amounts of volcanism, fissures opening up, and towering volcanoes in long rows, just blasting, just roaring 24-7, big volcanic land masses, a copper or a green-colored ocean, because it could have been very, very infused with iron, and flashes in the sky through a brown haze, you'd find asteroid impacts coming in, big ones that would all sort of reshape the landscape and reshape the atmosphere, and dust. If you looked through that haze, if you're standing at your time portal and you're looking up, you'd see this disk around the sun and it looks like Saturn's rings, but it's actually dust from the formation of the solar system. And our neighboring planets, just newly born, are scooping up that dust. So you'd see like bands through the dust and the dust is coming in. It's raining in, you know, like snow and flashing and, and covering the landscape, this red landscape. And you'd have no oxygen to breathe and you'd have acid rains, you know, big storm systems and 
huge tides and the moon much closer, the moon much bigger, maybe even with a little bit of uh, the orange of magma flows on the moon itself. So that's the picture. And you, you would expire quickly uh, without a full like environment suit with oxygen. And it's a, sort of a bad hair day for the Earth. In fact, the geologists, I think, refer to it as the Hadean Epoch, as in Hades, right? <laughs> right, the fire of Hades, exactly. But then things cooled down a bit, water collected. Yeah, so you had this, this event where the oceans, which were vapor in the atmosphere, suddenly just fell out. They rained out, and the whole Earth turned into basically a jacuzzi. Uh, you'd have uh, the ocean basins filling up lots of hydrothermal activity and vents under those early oceans and lots and lots of hydrothermal activity and volcanisms on these towering volcanic islands and land masses. You know, think like Iceland today or Kamchatka, places like that. And then on those land masses are bubbling pools that look like nature's chemistry set. They have different pHs and colors and geyser action is happening because of the rainwater, fresh water is raining down and filling chambers that are boiling and bubbling and coming up like a percolator, uh, like Old Faithful in Yellowstone. And you have this incredibly dynamic environment uh, on the early Earth. Yep. And presumably, if we have you know higher temperatures, the water circulation rate must have been much higher than it is currently. So it's got to be raining a bunch. It would be raining a bunch, and there would be enormous braided river systems uh, going down. There's no plants. There are no roots to hold the land. There are no microbes anywhere. You know, it's a, a dynamic place that is not yet alive. It's not a biosphere yet. These are conditions we're calling urable uh, for ur, the German word early or origin, and urable as being a sister term to habitable where a habitable world can, can host life as we know it, as water on the surface, et cetera, sources of energy. Urable is a place that life can get started on. And an urable world has different conditions than a habitable world. Yeah, that was a new concept to me. And as soon as I heard you say it on a video, I said, damn, that's right, right? There's nothing that says that a world that could support life, let's say if inoculated with it, is also a world that could bring life into being. And that, and that distinction is actually quite powerful. It's quite powerful. And we, we watched for years as our colleagues, especially in Mars exploration, because I, I was part of the Mars 2020 Perseverance landing site selection process. I was on a team making the arguments that sort of whittled down to three sites, and then they chose Jezero Crater. But we kept saying, well, life uh, on Mars, there's a difference between Mars's conditions where life would start there because it had oceans, it had, you know, hydrological cycle, had rainfall, had volcanoes, similar to Earth, uh, but it lost the atmosphere, it lost the surface water, it highly irradiated environment, highly sterilizing surface. So Mars is no longer urable, and it may have been just transiently urable four billion years ago, but it still may be habitable. There may be microbes that got their start in the wet rocks, you know, down, and we've got to drill to find them. Yep, and that's very interesting. And we'll come back to this towards the end when we start talking about exobiology, extrasolar, Fermi paradox. Everybody who listens knows one of my very favorite topics. 
So we have an earth that's now cool enough that some kinds of chemical reactions are going to be relatively stable, water everywhere, but no life at all. What does a theory that explains the origin of life have to explain? How we get from chemistry to biology, just very roughly. Not that's not go through the steps, but what are the big things that need to be explained? The big things, and this is sort of the question of the age and the hour, is where do you get your source of organic building blocks? Because life is made out of lipids and nucleobases and sugars and amino acids and things like that. Where do they come from? And the next one is, how do you get them together? How do you get them so that they're close enough to interact and then the third one, which is the most powerful new idea in origins of life, how do you get them to start to evolve toward a system of natural selection before there's natural selection, before there are genes to select? And that's what Dave and I call combinatorial selection. So how can you get the engine going? And you know, as you know, that any engine, any, any system that can pump away from equilibrium is a cycling system. And so where do you find cycling systems on a planet, on a, you know, an herbal world like Mars or the Earth that can pump a system away from equilibrium? And I loved your hypothesized general metaphorical answer, which was, as you say, combinatorics. And as it turns out, my home academic discipline is evolutionary computing. And what you were essentially describing is evolutionary computation as a metaphor for the origins of life. And if I'm putting words in your mouth, so tell me if I'm putting too many words in your mouth, you and your collaborator decide to come up with an approach where the original bootstrap, the smallest component that leads to life, could be discovered by random combination and very rough and ready selection at a very early stage with no sort of magic guidance. No magic needs occur. At least that's the hypothesis. Is that fair enough? That is fair enough. And in fact, I'm a, you know, an A-life geek like you and was tracking uh, artificial life in the late 80s, just as Chris Langton was sort of dreaming up his, his symbionts on his Apple II and before SFI got founded, and I went to visit SFI in 1994, in the summer, early fall of 94, when they just moved into that building on the hilltop. And I was just completely fascinated and obsessed with the use of computers to try to solve this, this mystery of, of life's beginnings. And did my PhD work, actually, in stochastic hill climbing, uh, characterizing little volumes of artificial chemistry all running through a selection process to see if I could get bonds to form and what was the nature of the cosmic wiggle that would take a collection of what were initially diffuse atoms that gradually became bonded to climb to further complexity through maxima, and this is Stuart Kaufman language, in a correlated landscape climbing up finding the ridges to the next maximum and keeping climbing, because that's actually what you have to be able to do. And the universe does that in a very slow poke process by forming stars and fusing things together and clouds then form. And the universe is a very low rate of productivity in terms of creating complexity. You know, it gets to hard rock geology, you know, where you know, life is starting, but it's a long period. 
So the question I had, the universal question I had is, how on earth do you kickstart this in a bunch of molecules in a primordial soup environment? How do you get that going? And then how do you get information into the picture? Yep. And as you know, this is a field that people have been talking about for quite a while, right? And there are various hypotheses that have come and gone. One that seems to have disappeared, I think it was popular 30 years ago, 25 years ago, was the idea of clay substrates as somehow being a physical catalyst. I haven't heard about that one much in a while. But two of the big ones that are left, and this I think a lot of our conversation is going to be about comparing and contrasting these and what your position on this is, is one that we've heard a lot about. Might I guess it's probably still the leading theory, I don't know, is the ocean vents theory that deep in the ocean, there are ocean vents rich in sulfuric compounds and other highly energetic compounds, which could serve as an energy source for the formation of life and, you know, physical substrate perspective. It's thought that, you know, the pumice cells could be places that serve the purposes of membranes, even though they're not actually biological membranes until you can get other kinds of membranes going, etc. And then the second goes all the way back to Darwin, and this is the warm little pool hypothesis. And that's the hypothesis that you and your collaborator basically support. Yeah, in fact, Darwin's words on this, it's a letter he wrote to his friend T.J. Hooker in 1871, and he talks about, oh, and what if in some warm little pond there with all sorts of ammonias and phosphoric salts and electricity etc. that, here's the money shot for all this, that a protein compound should form ready to undergo more complex changes. So what Darwin was talking about with this breathtaking intuition is you need a, a warm little pond, warm because you get more chemical activation energy, little because you have to concentrate chemicals together to get them to react. So he got that right. He even got some of the components right, the phosphoric salts, et cetera, et cetera, an energy source. And then he talks about the formation of a protein, which is a polymer, ready to go undergo more complex changes through cycles. So he's actually talking, what he's talking about is actually a hot spring that can cycle components in, form a peptide or a protein, a simple protein out of amino acids, and then somehow let it undergo complex changes. And if he'd written perhaps another sentence, he would have talked some sort of natural selection acting on those proteins collectively could make them more complex. So Darwin was at the very cusp of describing the hot spring hypothesis in 1871. And yet our field kind of went down a bunch of rabbit holes, some very productive areas, but a bunch of rabbit holes for over 100 years, 120 years or so. And we started looking at Darwin's intuition. And Dave Deemer, one of the breakthroughs that got us back to hot little pools was Dave Deemer took a meteorite, a meteorite that's called the Murchison meteorite, very famous, fell on Australia in 1969. And he got a chunk of it when he was at the university in Canberra. And what they did was they ground up the interior into a powder, put it into an acidic buffer, and instantly membranes formed, little compartments formed. It was a breathtaking paper published in the 80s, in like 1985, 86, that membranes, the, the boundary compartments for what could become the proto-cells that become the living cells actually came from space. Then other teams determined that amino acids were also 
on the Murchison meteorite, up to 70 amino acids. And then they found nucleobases. And then they found actual sort of water on the Ryugu, the Hayabusa 2 samples that came back that was last week was announced that they found organics and a drop of water in there. So it looks like more and more the solution to where did the organics come from, well, the, the problem number one, largely coming from the sky, not as a form of panspermia with living organisms, but the building blocks to make living organisms raining down in abundance in that period, because the Murchison meteorite is actually about the age of the earth. So it is the real deal. It is the actual material that was available that was coming down out of that disk through that smoggy sky. So that was a huge clue for everyone as to the sources of organics. Of course, there have been other arguments that there are routes to synthesize, chemically synthesize the lipids for the membranes and the amino acids, et cetera. So it's not yet definitive that the meteorites were the key, but it's at least suggestive. Is that fair enough? It's very suggestive, but I make it a practice to talk to everyone on either side of the aisle, if you will, you know, in political terms. I, I spend a lot of time talking to Mike Russell because I really admire Mike and his work predicting alkaline hydrothermal vents and all of his beautiful ideation around gradients. And he and I have known each other for, for years, and we've recently been in a big correspondence because we went out to Fly Geyser to do our experiments, actually in real hot springs uh, with the BBC recording. It's going to be out in a few months, I think, this documentary. And Mike went there, too. And he sent me a picture of him in a cowboy hat at Fly Geyser in Nevada. And I said to him, look, we need your help as a geochemist to understand this is a highly silicious environment. Here are our slides. I sent him our early results, actually. And he said, I disagree with you on where life can start, but I agree with you that you're getting very interesting results and that you can form these protocellular compartments, and you can also polymerize those proteins, those peptides, because we're actually able to take the building blocks of DNA, RNA, and peptides, amino acids, and through wet-dry cycling, and this is the key, this is the engine we talked about, we need an engine to drive things away from thermodynamic equilibrium. Dave Deemer also discovered and proposed and then experimentally discovered that if you dry a solution down, you, of course, concentrate you know, the water leaves and, and you get a concentrated medium and chemistry is more likely. But if you dry it down with the presence of lipid membranes, it forms these little sandwiches, little balls, little compartments and layers. And between the layers, if you have nucleotides, say the building blocks of RNA, they, they line up, they pre-polymerize, they stack together and then when the water leaves, it pulls them forward to form a bond. It's called an ester bond. And that's called a condensation reaction because water is uh, leaves. And so you can also form peptides, uh, strings of amino acids. And DNA can be self-assembled using dry-down sequencing. And Dave was the only person doing this in the 90s and 2000s. And now it's ubiquitous. So there isn't a, a week that goes by without a paper about a team using wet-dry cycling now to pull together the components of a prebiotic system. 
So it has become like the de facto way of getting things to move forward. This is a little unfortunate for our colleagues working on ocean vents because there's no way to do a condensation reaction deep in the oceans. And in a recent uh, visit I, a few years ago, just before COVID, I went to University College London and met with Nick Lane, who's a, a wonderful researcher, a fantastic author and science popularizer. And we spent like an afternoon there and I did a presentation to his whole group on the hot spring hypothesis because they're working on the deep ocean vent hypothesis. And one of the things that Nick revealed to me is that he didn't see a way to make polymers, how to, how to get condensation reactions to work in a submerged environment. One of the students actually at that time asked me, why is it important to have polymers in the origin of life? And I kind of realized at that point that perhaps, and I sort of confirmed this later talking with colleagues of Mike Russell, that the objection to the hot spring or the surface subaerial origin is they don't like the idea of this dirty material coming in on asteroids and dust particles, and somehow they need a pure source. So they've got a gradient and they're trying to figure out how to use it. So can they get CO2 to basically in almost an industrial process make you know, formic acid and make the building blocks that lead you to amino acids, et cetera, et cetera. That in these vents, they're just like industrial chemical processes. And I realized that they're working at the, the very base level of how do we make carbon into organic molecules deep in the ocean on a continuous basis, and they flow into little chambers and et cetera, et cetera. But in the entire 30-year history, they've never been able to demonstrate it. And one of the colleagues, there was a very critical article in Nature uh, that was published in December 2020, where you could sort of see the paradigm shift happening. And you can look this up. It's called the water paradox. I was going to bring that one up as my next question. You're doing it. What is the water paradox or the water problem, as some people call it? So this, this term water problem was coined by the chemist Steve Benner in Florida, who's an amazing mind in, in our field. And he said, look, the water paradox or water problem is the fact that life exists in water now, but if you just put your prebiotic chemical soup together with water, it will hydrolyze and break everything down. So if you form a polymer like a little peptide and you leave it hanging around in water, guess what? Water, what our fathers told us was the universal solvent. Water will break anything down. And so the irony is that why don't you dissolve in the shower? How does life stand up against the degradative forces of water? Well, it does it using enzymes, using ATP, using Energy, so bonds between the links of DNA form because there's an enzyme, a polymerase, that is kicking water out of the way, forming the bonds. So you are dehydrating constantly. In between the bonds of, of, of your polymers, which are you, there's little dehydration events happening in order for those condensation reactions to happen and for bodies to be built and maintained and repaired. But the irony, the chicken and egg, issue is that you don't have enzymes at the origin of life. Those are big, complicated machines. You have to find a way to do it without enzymes. And the chicken and egg is solved by wet-dry cycling. 
Of course, there are other approaches. In fact, this argument is somewhat orthogonal between the ocean vent and the warm pool, though I think it provides a little weight on both sides. And this is the question about both catalysis and whether it was metabolism first or information first or whether they co-evolved. And you know, I think that's a really interesting question because it's sort of your cartoon version of little factories. You know, that's sort of the metabolism first, that somehow we stumbled into the reverse Krebs cycle, which does turn out, at least based on the work of Smith, Morowitz, and Copley, to be sufficient to synthesize everything we need, right? At least that's their claim. And that perhaps metallic catalysis was enough to bootstrap it initially until they eventually developed weak chemical catalysts, and then RNA co-evolved with that system, which has the very interesting attribute of being a semi-weak catalyst and a carrier of information at the same time, which is kind of interesting and curious. What's your take and your collaborators' take on this question of, was it metabolism first? Was it vesicles first? Was it RNA first? Or was it all co-evolved? Our approach was literally to go to nature. So what Charles Darwin did in, I think it's 1835, is he, as a young man, he boarded the Beagle and did an around the world trip. And that tested his sort of theoretical notions about the origin of species. And when he got to the Galapagos, he got to this amazing place where you could actually see the plasticity of species. You could see finches with different beak shapes. And he could work out that their beak shapes changed because the trees would kind of go extinct or there would be more nut-bearing trees or there would be sources of more insect fruit food supplies. You'd have longer, pointier beaks. And only at the Galapagos that nature taught him and showed him that species are mutable. So when he got back to Britain, you know, 20-some years later, out came the origin of species. So what Dave and I have done is saying we have a wonderful set of theoretical ideas of conjecture. There's a lot of conjecture in Origin of Life. We have to go to natural analogs on the Earth that would have been present four billion years ago, these volcanic settings especially, and we have to study them. And then we have to try the chemistry actually in them and that nature will teach us. And having done that, come back and come up with a new hypothesis that's very grounded. And one of the places we went in, in our voyage of the Beagle was northwestern Australia with Martin van Krenendonk and the Australian Center for Astrobiology. We took this crazy bus from stromatolites, which are these soft rock towers with squishy tops at Shark Bay. They're living fossils. They're what used to surround all the continents for billions of years. These stromatolites are living microbial mats that keep growing up when they're covered over with sand grains or sediments. And they're the most ubiquitous fossil on the earth for evidence for life. And Martin and his crew took us up to the Pilbara, to the North Pole Dome, where we went up to outcrops that had been uncovered after you know, three and a half billion years of being lava entombed. And these are the most precious early life locations on Earth because you can see the wavy textures of stromatolites in these outcrops. You can see stream beds. You can see water drop, raindrop preservation from a single rainstorm three and a half billion years ago in the Pilbara. So that is what the Earth was like a few hundred million years after life's origin. We can see it. And 
at the same time as Dave and I were proposing or first sort of crafting the hot spring hypothesis, and Martin Van Cranendonk and his graduate student Tara Jokic discovered the oldest hot spring known in the solar system up in the Pilbara geyserite, a mineral that sort of got these bands of titanium oxide that's clearly laid down by the splashing of geysers. And in there is clear evidence from microbial communities. And so it's one of those times in science where there's a simultaneous discovery from deep time that validates an approach, which is, is conjecture with experiment. So we found evidence, the oldest evidence for life that is clear on the planet in a hot spring setting, thriving on the land three and a half billion years ago. And so we put it all together. We said then, what is in those hot springs? All the essential elements, wet, dry cycling, access to organics from atmospheric synthesis, as well as meteoritic, you know, dust and, and rocks coming in. We think we have everything we need and we have a smoking gun sitting there in that hot spring geyserite. So all of that piled up and became, that's where Scientific American covered it on their cover story in 2017. The audience can look up. So what we're suggesting here is that there are great and well-informed conjectures about scenarios for life's origin, say at alkaline hydrothermal vents, or uh, the use of clay surfaces that can do a little bit of polymerization. But the only way a hypothesis is to gain traction and move beyond conjecture is the accumulating weight of evidence. And the weight of evidence around a subaerial small pool, Darwin worm little pond scenario for life's origins is, has been accumulating rapidly and solidly for the last 20 years to the point where the nature news story in, in uh, December 2020 came out, the water paradox, and it was a, you know, a shouting match in the science media. And there have been several of those. There have been sort of these shouting matches, which are characteristic of paradigm shifts that Thomas Kuhn defined back in the 60s. My favorite paradigm shift in science, which I was obsessed with when I was a 12-year-old, was the coming in of the tectonic plates, the whole model that Wegener proposed that if you went to American geophysical unions in the mid-60s, you'd find all these people screaming at each other around, well, no, mountain chains are made by an upthrust process that's connected to blocks, or volcanism is sourced in this way, or no, South America and Africa do not fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. It's a complete accident. You know, it's a complete, you know, you're misreading the data. All this was happening, and I think it was Carl Sagan or somebody who described that when theories in science are put forward or hypotheses, there's a, a sort of a shouting match and you're shut out, and then there's a begrudging acceptance of things, and then data starts coming in. And the data, the key data for the tectonic plate proposal was they ran a ship, they sailed a ship across what they thought of, there, there might be a ridge. They've sailed across the Atlantic and they had a magnetometer on it. And the magnetometer basically mapped out like a butterfly the bands of seafloor that were being emitted by spreading uh, from that mid-Atlantic ridge. And they were fixing on where the magnetic North Pole was. 
when the, the lava came out and it was a complete pattern. It was a mirror pattern and they realized their seafloor is spreading. Europe and America are, are moving apart. Plate tectonics and continental drift are real. And then that was that accumulation of evidence that piled up to shift all of geology to a, a more simple model that was testable where you could then start seeing all the patterns fitting together all like a jigsaw puzzle. And that's, I believe, where we're at with Origin of Life. When we move back to subaerial landscapes, to pools on land, because we have access to so much more combinatorial complexity on a landscape. And most importantly of all, we can go out to the environments and do the chemistry and get results. And our colleagues at Cambridge are using uh, UV uh, light to get to nucleotides from nucleobases, for example. And if you scour the literature today, you'll find hundreds of experiments presuming a land-based pool that are just accumulating uh, more and more evidence. Yeah, very interesting about the paradigm shifts. Interestingly, I was also fairly obsessed with tectonic plates when I was like in fifth grade and actually built a couple of like clay-based models showing how Africa and South America fit together and all that. Of course, at that time, the tectonic plate theory had become the dominant theory, but there were still some laggards out there. You know, as Max Planck famously said, science advances one funeral at a time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it's not quite that dire, but you know, Sometimes it is. So let's dig in a little further here to the warm little pool hypothesis. What did these warm little pools look like three and a half, 3.7, 3.8 billion years ago? You know, what were their constituents? Well, uh, we know this pretty precisely because the teams in Australia, not only did they find the surface hot spring pool, they store the uh, geyserite, but then they took a drilling rig out there couple of years ago, and they made drill cores all the way down deep into this Archean rock, and they went into hot spring fasci. So these facies that are clearly hot springs, they could bring the cores up to the surface, and then they could chemically analyze them. So they were not exposed to weathering. So these cores showed all of the components proposed by people like Steve Benner that are necessary for that warm little pool to carry out prebiotic chemical reactions. This sort of general, general set were found. So the way that that little pool in the Archean and the Pilbara would have looked is very close to what you would see in hot spring pools today. So if you went out to Yellowstone or perhaps Hawaii or especially Iceland, Iceland is actually the place where the word geyser, which is an Icelandic word, the, the there's a place called Geyser with a geyser that's going off repeatedly and on a, like a clockwork. That's from Iceland. So if you look at Iceland today and you'd see pools of different colors, different pHs, meaning some are acidic and some are alkaline, pools that are more turbid, pools that are connected to other pools by a little channels, uh, pools that have completely dried down, and you can see all this stuff in the bottom of them. And what I'd propose, like to propose in Stuart Kaufman terminology is consider this. If you had a geologist and a biologist who had booked a day on a time travel machine and they decided to dial it to 4.1 billion years and they packed all their gear, they put on their environment suit with their oxygen and they had their kit and they went through the time portal 
and they walked out onto the crunchy, lava-strewn landscape of a Hadean island, they might see in the distance this steam coming up. And the steam is from a hydrothermal field driven, and let's say, on the flanks of a volcano. And they walk up to it, and they see different colors. And even though there's no life there, there's something going on at the edge of the pool, and it's this sludge, this slurry, this sort of slick of materials. And the geologist bends down, and he takes out his rock hammer, and he scrapes it and says, well, you know, it's I can't break it with a my rock hammer, so it's not geology, and I'm not that interested. And the biologist scoops up a bit of this material, and she puts it under a microscope, and she sees layers of lipid and stuff, clearly organic stuff, even a little bit of you know material, sooty materials, all kinds of stuff. And she says, this isn't alive, but it's not it's not rock, it's not geology, it's something else. And so what they do in the story is they decide to dial the knob 150 million years forward and go back. So then they go back and they drop themselves onto another landmass and there are still steaming pools everywhere. But when they walk up to them, what she notices right away is that slick is still there and she realized some of it's coming from being blown in as dust from the landscape of stuff that's falling on the on the earth or seeing synthesizing the clouds of stuff coming out of the volcano. And it's all collected, but now it's different. It's black. It has a distinct color that it didn't before. And she'll scoop that up and look at it under a microscope and see that there are polycyclic hydrocarbons in there. And we all know that these sooty polycyclics are the most common organic compound in the universe. They're, you can see them, you know, James Webb will be seeing them in clouds around in star formation, and that they can act as a pigment. And that teams at NASA Ames and our group has actually taken these polycyclics and meteoritic quinones, put them into lipids, shone ultraviolet light onto it, and that light is captured by those polycyclics, and it's coupled into a pH change, and it can be coupled into energy capture directly from sunlight, even before life starts. So it's a plausible means by which not just the energy of wet-dry cycling, not just the energy of the heat of the pool or of redox couples that are coming in from the hydrothermal chemistry, but the actual capture of sunlight itself is plausible to kickstart that sludge. So the, the biologist looks at that and realizes this is now energized. The pH is lower. It's around pH 2. And she takes out her handy nanopore sequencer, which Dave Diemer uh, helped invent through his discovery of nanopore sequencing in the, in the 80s and 90s. And she sequences the sludge and finds short, basically DNA-like oligomers or RNA-like oligomers, as you mentioned earlier, that are acting both as a catalyst and a template, and realizes that through cycling, through the capture of energy, through the cycling process in the pool of wet and dry, through trillions of protocells that form with quadrillions of polymers, the system has selected itself to attach to a pigment to also start metabolism that is then amplifying these little RNA widgets which is then making some little simple proteins 
and a prebiotic, pre-living, but on the way to life system has now emerged. And those sludges are now everywhere. They're on the boundaries of all the pools that they find. They have, they have replicated across a landscape. So there's now a combinatorial landscape with quintillions of, of RNA strands trying out different combinations driven by energy, driven by source organics, and cycling in varied environments where they're sharing material back and forth. And that's the picture of the one-pot solution for the origin of life, where it isn't metabolism first and then a replicator. It's simultaneously. And it's simultaneous for all the players, for the amino acid players and the nucleotide you know, species. And it's in one pot and it's also encapsulated. So there isn't like a, a membrane first. Ultimately, membranes have to come first because you have to get the chemicals concentrated in small spaces, but it's combinatorial selection driving this whole thing in this combinatorial landscape. And that's where computer geek heads like me come in, where I said to the chemists that I met back in 2008, 2009, when I came into the field, hey, isn't the origin of life more of a, a computer science, at least as much as a computer science OS boot up problem than it is individual chemical reactions? So what I've just gone in this long description is a vision which is testable at every stage on it, where it's situated on an actual landscape in conditions we are pretty sure were happening. And we can build laboratory simulation chambers to do this. And we can also go out and do it at, in places like Rotorua in New Zealand, which we've been doing as well, that we can, we can take all that conjecture all those great ideas from Eric Smith and other people, Jeremy England, and we can take them into a box and we can say, they're wonderful. Let's see if they actually pass a, a test to become a, a hypothesis, to become evidence in this setting where we can get so much else working chemically. Let's try some of those more way out ideas and see if they're valid for the question of where life can start. Yep, that, of course, is what science is. You know, you can conjecture all you want, but until you get some facts, you're just conjecturing, right? Now, one question for you in this model, the vesicle material. You know, one of the advantages of metabolism first is it provides a plausible mechanism to manufacture lipids in quantity, right? Is there enough precursors for lipids in the environment to be a plausible source of vesicles? The answer is quite probably because carboxylic acids, which would be available in abundance on meteoritic infall and in interplanetary dust particles coming in, in the early solar system, would provide you basically fatty acid lipid membranes in abundance. And there are also, as you point out, there are actually synthesis pathways for simple amplophiles, sim simple lipids in the hot spring setting. That's been demonstrated too. There's actually another piece of work going on, which is called the biogenic atmosphere, which I just, this is an, an amazing piece of work. Uh, ben Pierce and colleagues at Johns Hopkins and many others are working on this, that if you whack a planet early on, you change its atmosphere for, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of years, and it changes it substantially. So models for an actual observed 
synthesis pathways in the atmosphere of Titan, which is hydrocarbon dense, basically quantum models to show what kinds of things are being made constantly in that atmosphere. It's like smog over Los Angeles. There's whole kinds of things are being made. If you are in a smoggy city, you can smell basically the hydrocarbons that are made on a daily basis through photochemistry. So if the earth was whacked, it would basically create a factory for organics. This is is some of the predictions that would have been raining down in pure form relatively, not encased in rock. And so that's yet another source for, for the organics that we had to get whacked at just the right you know, rates. And that could include organics to give you your lipid boundaries. But the key thing here that convinced a lot of our colleagues, Armin Mukajanian and others, that the ocean was implausible as a place for life to start, as he pointed out, we did some work in Yellowstone where we introduced these simple lipids, these fatty acid membranes that are very leaky and very friable into hot spring waters that we took directly out of Yellowstone pools, uh, both acidic and alkaline. And they formed, and you can even see it. I've, I've got a picture of these vials and I shake them up and they go milky because there are micelles and, and compartments that form instantly from these simple meteoritic lipids. And then we took those same lipids, we took some seawater from Santa Cruz Harbor and we put it into the same mixtures and it basically collapses the the divalent cations in the in the ocean water collapse the whole system. So you get these little crystallized little clumps everywhere. And that's one of the big arguments that you would need specially designed biological lipid boundaries to have a stable protocell in a, a marine setting or in a highly salty setting. And so that's another argument where life had to evolve the ability to existed in in the ocean at all. And that's that's kind of an extremophile environment for early life. I I did read that in, I don't know if it was in your paper, one of the other papers when I was researching around. And one of the things that reminded me of is we do know that the salinity of the ocean was much lower in those days. In fact, it's hypothesized that it's similar to the ionic content of the cellular medium, probably not by coincidence. Now, does the concept that a highly ionic solution of the current salinity would destroy naive lipid vesicles without energy pumps, is that also true at the level of salinity that we would predict at, say, 3.7 billion years ago, which was much lower? I've read other articles. I'm not, this is not my area of expertise that argued that the salinity was similar in those years. And then, in fact, the oceans also had a high amount of dissolved iron. So you, you had even more species to deal with that would affect membrane stability and also the ability for prebiotic chemistry to happen. And in no laboratory in the world that I know of are attempts being made to use uh, you know, water other than uh, distilled water to do your experiments. And if you actually propose to use something like seawater, uh, a lot of the chemists would say, you know, that would just complicate matters and things might not work. So they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't use that. Now, of course, our colleagues at JPL are doing these wonderful simulated chimneys, you know, called chemical gardens sometimes. Inside the laboratory, they're doing these pressure vessels and making these artificial smokers. And so they are attempting to get some carbon fixation, some 
say, amino acid to form. But as, as yet, there's very little evidence for it. But on the other hand, there's a very attractive chemical gradient. But one thing that Dave Deemer pointed out, there was an article published about five years ago, where the author simply drew a membranous boundary that was supposedly formed with the mineral. You, you mentioned pumice earlier. So like a little compartment of pumice. And then they placed basically an ATP synthase inside that, that mineral compartment said, here it is, ATP synthase would form here and would start the process of, of making ATP in the chimney environment of a hydrothermal vent. And it was so nonsensical that there was a dispute that went into the New York Times about this. And Dave wrote a, a, a piece for Nature Communications that we were invited to write a, a critique. And Dave pointed out uh, to the colleagues that not only where does this ATP synthase appear, it's a very evolved enzyme. How can you just simply place it there saying it just appeared magically? And the second thing is that the width of the mineral membrane is a thousand times that of a lipid. So it's a thousand times. So it's very much like saying the Niagara Falls has an energy potential because it falls over you know, a meter or something. You get this great drop off on Niagara Falls. But if you extended that to a mile, you'd have a rapids system that does the same drop and that the potential energy is, is, is not there. You have to have a membrane that is thin in order to capture energy. And this is one of the things that Dave is also critical about, you know, the more recent work. He, he was a colleague of Hans Morowitz. And Hans Morowitz was really focused on cell boundaries and cell membranes as the place where energy can be captured across membranes chemiosmosis, you know, Peter Mitchell's work very early on. But recently, there's just, uh, you know, when, when we read Eric Smith's proposals, he doesn't even mention membranes in, in the book, the last book he did with Morowitz, which is absurd, because only in the milieu of a boundary membrane are you going to be able to capture a gradient. So in the hydrothermal vents, uh, scenario, if they cannot have stable lipid, there's no source for lipids in the hydrothermal vent, for one thing, and they can't form a, a boundary, a little protocell, a little compartment in a marine, in a salty environment. So there's no way to ever get chemicals together. There's no way to undergo the most important step in my book, being a, a geekhead, which is combinatorial selection. Trillions of protocells, each with different contents, being pressed through selection barriers so that we can see what, you know, at, in the days of Santa Fe Institute, you know, the great search for the origins of emergence itself, of complexity itself through cycling steps, through artificial life programs, genetic programming. That's the juice where if we, once we start seeing that happen in molecules inside vesicular compartments, we'll really be on the track. And that's really the next frontier for origin of life work. Though, as you point out, JPL is still working on the black smoker hypothesis. And don't they have an assumption that physical containment within a porous rock substrate could provide a semi-permeable membrane-like function and the approximate scale that would be necessary? That has never been shown. And so that was the criticism in the New York Times of, 
of that particular nature article that's called by Weiss and uh, Martin, Bill Martin. And that it's an, it's basically absurd what they were showing in the article that a rock pour, a rock compartment is so thick. It's not semi-permeable. And not only that, it's not replicable. You can't make rock pour environments and subject them to selection that you would need in order to kickstart a form of evolution, combinatorial selection. Even if you had clumps of organics within those rock pores, it's not small enough and not concentrated enough. And you're in a flow reactor, a flow through system. All that is just basically dissipating to the bulk of the ocean and being lost. And there's no way to form a polymer from a building block. So you can't do information and you can't do a catalysis and expression. You can't get functions out of polymers because you can't get to polymers. As Nick Lane had had told me a few years ago, we can't get to polymers in this system. The question being, well, why do you need polymers at the origin of life? No polymers, no life. That's pretty clear. You know, if you can disprove polymerization, then you can disprove that is the route for origin of life. Now, you mentioned something. It's one of my favorite topics, actually, which is semi-permeable membranes. One of the key parts of the evolution of proto-life had to have been the evolution of the semi-permeability of the membranes. The sort of the math there, and you know, again, I've actually used some of these approaches in evolutionary computation, thinking about membranes and protocols and things of this sort. What passes the membrane in both directions turns out to actually be very interesting and important. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. In a period of a morning, you can take egg yolks and render them down and make phospholipid, make a little pile of powder of phospholipids. Or you can you know, buy a lipid compound, you can buy fatty acids. And as soon as you put them on a slide, you know, get yourself a real cheap microscope, maybe based on your phone, you can place this little powder, maybe, a, you know, a milligram of material on, on a slide and put some water, put a drop of water and you will watch a whole universe unfold. Uh, compartments, little uh, corkscrew shapes as, as the water comes in, as the energy changes as the lipid forms the boundaries and adjusts. And actually inside those layers and there's a lipid membranes that are butting off material, there's all kinds of transport happening. The bilayer is actually composed of jostling heads and tails, amphiphilic molecules. One side is, is positively charged, the other side is negatively charged. And the tails are wiggling together and they're flipping. The tails are doing this dance and the molecules themselves are flipping. And every time they flip, there's a transient pore that's opened up and water can shoot through and small molecules can shoot through. Now it turns out, and this is an amazing fact of that, it's not just one water molecule. The transient pore opens up due to wiggling and a line of water molecules starts squirting through. And it turns out that if, if you're doing this amazing trick of having a, a protonated solution on the outside and a, a receiver, a donor for an electron and a receiver for an electron on the inside, the hydrogen, for instance, if it's a hydrogen, it'll attach to the water on the squirting, marching line of water molecules, and it will basically jump along like a what's called a water wire, and it will pop off the other side. So we get an electric wire 
along that group of water molecules that's marching through through that membrane. So way more is going on than just stuff sort of wiggling through. And in some sense, that water wire is the precursor. It's the great ancestor of all pores that follow because it's built into the very physics, the biophysics of that, that membrane and what is going on with energy getting across it. And that's an, an incredible clue as to origin of life, that it's actually everything that we see, Jim, in, in our s- solutions for life basically takes over stuff that's happening naturally through self-assembly, the butting off of protocells, layering, polymerization, and even these water wires where energy is transducted, all exist in the warm little pool environment that's cycling. And life simply evolves polymers, enzymes to take over those jobs. So in the pre-life system, the sludge at the edge of the pool, stuff is happening in there that looks like biology and acts like biology. It's just, it's happening because of physics the physics of amphiphiles, the physics of membranes are the key. They're the organizing matrix for everything that comes. So in a way, of course, you need organics, you need polymers, and you need metabolism, you need energy sources, but none of it's going to happen without that sludge, without those layers of, of amphiphilic, you know, lipid layers, bilayers that are just giving you a place to do it. And we call that sludge a progenitor the very substrate in which life can emerge. Uh, so that's a new term. We're also currently writing a book chapter on. Yeah, so people hated the idea of humans coming from monkeys. What are they going to think about humans coming from sludge? Right? <laughs> it's an ignoble sludge, and maybe it will win the ignoble prize one year. Hopefully it wins the actual Nobel Prize some year. So let's now dig into the mechanisms of your small pools, because you, you're focusing on a specific subclass of small warm pools, which are ones that cycle with respect to their hydration that, you know, that go from fully liquid to gel-like to dry. So why don't you run us through this subclass of small warm pool that you believe is central to the pump that allows, you know, this work to happen. So this is sort of, you could call this, given that we're, uh, we're here in Northern California, the jacuzzi origin of life. So if you sit in your jacuzzi and you, you really shouldn't shampoo your hair there and take a bath, but even if you don't do that, your skin cells and your, your organism is letting loose all kinds of stuff into your jacuzzi. And if you dry down your jacuzzi to clean it out, you'll notice this band of white around the outside. Yeah, the famous bathtub ring, right? The famous bathtub ring. And if you scraped that and looked at it, it would be very, very complex because a lot of it's made out of lipid. It's made out of broken down bits of cells and all kinds of, there'd be all kinds of stuff in there. So think of it like if you took a a zillion bubble baths and the bubbles in the bubble baths were the little experimental proto-cells and within them wasn't just air or water, volumes of water, but it was little bits of DNA and RNA, each of which have to do a job they, they either do no job at all and their bubble could pop, but if there are just a few polymers within those protocells when they're floating around in the jacuzzi, it stabilizes them. So you get like a bubble bath. You get lots of bubbles on the surface that don't pop. 
Now, these are bubbles underwater, but they're stable because they have the polymers in them. If they didn't have the polymers in them, they'd fall apart because they're just made out of fatty acids and they're very friable. So as the, the jacuzzi drains down or dries down, the surviving bubbles form that sludge on the bottom and another magical moment happens because now they're all jostled together. And when things are jostled together, they're even more stable. And not only that, but a truly wondrous thing can begin, the network effect. Because if there's a chemical reaction happening in one little protocell bubble, it might make a product that diffuses across that sludge into another little protocell, which triggers another reaction, which triggers a third and a fourth, and you get the spontaneous arising of the first network in the universe, because physics doesn't do networks very well. But this is a point-to-point -point nodal-based network emergence in the, the sludge, in the gel phase, when everything is jostled together. And that's key. Let's draw that line. There's the wet phase, when it literally is a pool. And then there's the gel phase, where there's still enough moisture to allow some motility of the chemical species, but not fully dilute either. That's very important. And there's another powerful thing that's happening when the pool's drying down, it's getting more concentrated. So the sludge forms, it's sticking up above the water a little bit. And then the pool water's drying down, highly concentrated, full of organics and other solutes. And those are pushed in to the gel. And so where you could get metabolism, where you could get Stuart Kaufman's autocatalytic sets is that moment. And this is what we, we covered in his book, A World Beyond Physics, because the autocatalytic sets have everything they need to get going when you're in the gel, when you're in the sludge. There's more exposure to sunlight because the pool's dried down. Concentrated material are squirting in across these membranes. Little nodes are being set up. Concentrations are rising like crazy. Catalysis is happening. Sunlight's captured. Pool redox couples are captured. And so you get this rich metabolism thing, very much like after the rains first come in the spring in the desert. When they come, they make those moist soils, and that's when you get the maximum metabolic activity on the land. And then as the sludge continues to dry down, all of these little protocells fuse, bing, 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 into layers. And the layers are the transport highways for polymers to move around and mix together, because sometimes the polymers have their feet stuck into the membrane. And you get this massive network, Conway's game of life thing happening for geeks like us, you know, from the 80s. You get this new regime of the layered, mostly dry regime where there's still mobility, but there are layers by their thousands. And there's this city of polymers moving around, stuff colliding, colliding probabilistically to find new combinations of polymer to polymer, polymer to energy, or polymer to simple things. And then lo and behold, whether it be a single drop from dew or a flush from a geyser, that pool fills up again. And everything that's happened in the moist and the dry phase is now butted off. We can wash this under microscopes into little vesicles that contain new random sets of things for testing for stability, and then back to metabolism and back to synthesis of polymers, and then back to test you out in the world, like a seed or a spore, back to the moist environment, get together and get your metabolic things going, 
and then back to the dry phase, synthesize your polymers. And this goes and goes and goes and ends up being the pattern we see on the landscape of a field of grass that is growing like crazy in the spring because of the moist soils. It's creating its compartments for DNA and RNA called seeds in the summer and the fall. And then the big rains come in, blow everything around, move the seeds around and the spores and everything in the environment ready for another cycle. So the very pattern of nature all the way through the microbial community, the plant world, the fungal world, seems to be this incredible thermodynamic engine of wet, dry cycling. The whole planet seems to be patterned on that. And this is when I was in the Australian desert at a place called Gallery Hill, I saw a shoe leather-like substance on the ground on the desert. And Martin Van Krenendonk came up and said, that's a microbial map. That's called a desert map. And if you pour water on it right now, it'll come alive within 30 seconds. Trillions of, of organisms. So I took my water bottle out and I poured it on a rock. It was flowing down to where all this desert mat was. And it suddenly became spongy. And it, it basically now it was alive because it had been dry, dry, dry for months and months. But everything's in stasis. And then I had that flash of insight at that moment, which was, oh my gosh, the origin of life came as a communal unit, not individual cells. It was, this, it was a communal unit of protocells in collaboration four billion years earlier than this mat that I'm seeing at my feet. And then Martin drove us all the way up to the Pilbara where we actually saw the evidence of it. And that it, that desert mat in the desert of Australia was very adapted to mostly dry and only getting wet during cyclones. But that the, its ancestor existed four billion years earlier and the evidence was in the rocks three, three and a half billion years, just a day's drive north of where we were. A few things. You mentioned Stuart Kaufman again. I think I'll point out to the audience, I did an interview with Stuart in EP18, relatively early in my podcasting career, on his book, A World Beyond Physics. So that's a quite interesting episode people might want to check out. Next, as we both know, a key ingredient to any kind of evolutionary ratchet is a selection process, which, of course, in full-on Darwinian evolution, where we have actual relatively high-fidelity replication, fitness equals rate of successful replication. What have you guys hypothesized is the nature of the selection process that allowed a ratchet to move towards greater and greater complexity? And where did that occur? Did that occur at the gel phase, at the dry phase, or at the rehydration phase? You know, where in this drying and, and wetting pool the, the selection ratchet occur? And what does that ratchet look like? That's a, a superb question because it's at the edge of the science. And so literally, we're inviting our colleagues who are now doing wet-dry cycling to now look toward the ratchet, to look toward things that they can do in their solutions and their systems of wet-dry cycling to start molecular evolution or at least combinatorial selection. Because the prediction we have is that step number one, the first selection barrier is that you have to overcome is stability. We call it the S polymer for stable. Because what if your little protocells that butted off just all fall apart? You end up with sludge all the time, no new polymers. So if the polymers stabilize the compartment they're in, they are S polymers. They don't even have to have a particular sequence. They can just be any polymer. 
that just helps stabilize the compartment it's in. So that's selected for, that's already been achieved both in the laboratory and in field work. The next polymer that we think is going to help with that is pore forming. We were talking about pores earlier. Well, it turns out that pores are also stabilizing in that they let dangerous stuff, things with high osmotic pressure out of a protocell. So they would have two jobs to help create stable membranes and also to let things in to start metabolism. So we think the P polymer, the the pore-forming polymer, will be next because it doesn't have to be specific. It only has to jam its foot in the membrane and create that transient pore. And it turns out groups led led by Christian Myers in Germany have, have done that. They've actually evolved the first P polymers in their system. And it also turns out that leading researchers like Jack Shostak, back in way in 1993, they evolved a, a, a ligation-performing ribozyme through random selection of 300 mers of RNA sequences going through a tube, which the selection criteria were basically glass beads, which would cause the RNA sequences to stick to the beads. And over several weeks, you can read this wonderful paper, they amplified out of random sequences was formed a ribozyme capable of ligation activity just through chemical evolution. So there's an entire field now of chemical evolution, a lot of being done by Jerry Joyce at Scripps Institute. Beautiful work that has shown that in the laboratory, we can start with a random sequence of RNA or other compounds, and we can, based on the design of selective criteria, we can pull out unique design, unique solutions that emerged from the random sequence that no one could predict. And so the hot spring hypothesis brings all that together and says, we have a glass tube called lipid. We have compartments that we can put things in and do molecular evolution inside the lipid environment. And we predict that beyond the P polymer would come the M polymer, the first metabolic polymer that is capturing energy, perhaps solar, perhaps chemical, that's doing a little out of catalytic cycle, this amplifying material that makes the whole community more robust. The the progenote, which is the collection of emerging protocells, becomes more robust. And then after that, perhaps the first catalyst would emerge that really kicks up all of those out of catalytic cycles. It makes it more efficient. But along the way, you have to have the I polymer to get the C polymer, the catalyst. You need the I polymer, the information storing polymer. And this is the work that we're going to start undertaking next year. Early work has suggested that if you have a short strand of DNA and you introduce hot water, those strands separate, they melt. And that's in in industry, in medical science, it's called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. That's how genes are sequenced using a PCR device. But what if in a warm little pond, you had a a double strand of a DNA-like material that when the hot water hits it, it melts, comes apart. It can then express through Watson-Crick base pairing another polymer that will then pop off and perhaps the strand can then close. And you have a way to express a quasi-gene or a protogene without having complicated enzymes. This is the work we're doing starting January with a 
a wonderful new student coming from Lithuania uh, through the Biota Institute. We're going to try to make this work. That last one is really interesting. I'm just sort of thinking here live, so this might be a stupid-ass question, but could thermal change in near real time be part of this, right? Because one of the things, if you go to a place like Yellowstone, it gets hot, it cools off, then it gets hotter again and cools off. Could that real-time, near real-time temperature change you know, break the DNA. And then if the temperature range is just right, let it recombine, right? So you get, you know, the separation recombination without all the very complicated and expensive machinery that advanced life has. You've nailed it on the head and hit that proverbial nail again, Jim. Jack Shossack's group at Harvard uh, has proposed something like Yellowstone Lake as a place because you end up with a very cold surface because on the early earth, we had a fainter young sun. So it may have not been as hot as we think. There may have been frozen environments. So they're proposing that polymers that are making the transit from the hot spring vent in the lake, getting up into that cool environment, would have chemically different changes, and then they would melt, they would strand separate, and then this would be a place for amplification and templating. Uh, We would add that into the hot spring environment because we need the wet-dry cycling to actually make those polymers in the first place. So literally, it's all coming together into a picture that we have in the subaerial landscapes, in pools, whether they have some cool environments, dry environments, hot infusions, and simple dew-forming events, diurnal dew-forming, steam that is creating sheens on rocks. That's enough of a wet-dry cycle to do a lot. So that these environments are so rich, the, the environment that's at the boundary between the atmosphere, the mineral you know, geosphere, and the hydrosphere, that that boundary is where the maximum chemical complexity and power, energetic, basically thermodynamic ratchet is possible at that boundary. And even today, if you look at life at the water's edge, you know, the edge of a marshland, it is just rocking it right there. That is the The place where water meets soil or mineral and air is the place where you have the maximum complexity in life. And a lot of solar throughout there, too, as well. The marshes are the richest producing areas. Chesapeake Bay, or near where I grew up, famous as the great protein factory. In fact, when when I was visiting Freeman Dyson at the Institute for Advanced Study, we would have lunch together every once in a while. And he said, you know, I I grew up in Bournemouth at the edges of the oceans. And as a child, this is in the 1920s, he would walk and look at all the rich life in those little pools and watch how they dried down and chemically changed. And it made him wonder about the origin of life back in in the 20s as Freeman Dyson, the physicist. Interesting. Now, I really, really like this, this eye polymer. You know, this of all the things I've learned about your approach, this is the one that I go, aha, because if this actually works, it answers, or at least provides a road to answering one of the great difficult questions in evolutionary biology, which is, as I mentioned, you know, my core field is evolutionary computing. And as you know, having fooled with a life and similar things, there's a well-known problem in evolutionary computing, which is known as the error catastrophe. If the replication between rounds, shall we call it, of evolution, if the error rate's too high, there's a rather crisp limit to how much evolution can happen. And when you get the error rate low enough, the ability for evolution to ratchet 
massively increases. You know, this has always been one of my questions about the RNA world. You know, RNA world is not at all good at precise replication, very high error rates. And yet we know in advanced life, there's very elaborate machinery to detect and even correct errors in DNA. So how does the very high error rate RNA world ratchet itself high enough through the error catastrophe to create the higher fidelity error-corrected DNA world that all life, every bit of life, no exceptions, exhibits today on Earth. And in fact, one of the best conversations I ever had in my life, four-hour discussion with Stuart Kaufman about exactly this question. And we both said, damn, that's a good question. (laughs) We couldn't come up with any answers. Maybe this is part of the answer. Well, I can give you, if we again situate ourselves in the cycling pool, what we gain from that to overcome Manfred Eigen's, you know, error catastrophe, I think they called it at one point, Eigen and, and his collaborator. And also Freeman uh, points it out on his book on Origin of Life, is if you look at individual replicators in isolation, they're undergoing a serial replication, of course. You know, this is this is all their models show, the summation over errors, and then the whole system crashes. But if you have a cycling system and a population, a population of replicators, some of which are pretty high error rate, of course, they will crash out. But however, they are added to by other replicators and the replicators interact with each other. And in the beginning, we have to ask ourselves, what is the job of a replicator? The job of a replicator in the beginning is to make stuff that's just good enough. And this was came out of a conversation I had with Freeman, just good enough to do a job in its own context. So we can't use modern biology really as a, a guide to protobiology because we have to do certain jobs. And one of them is to keep our protocells together. So let's look at the first job, stability. The protocell doesn't wobble apart in solution. We just need any polymer. We could just have dimers, you know, two-chain polymers. They would keep the protocell from wobbling apart. So the replication thing is just give me any polymer. It can be an aperiodic crystal with any, any structure, any symbol order. So a replicating process in that case is just wet-dry cycling and the self-assembly and addition, elongation of polymers. So that's the job the replicator has to do is step one is not too tough of a job, but it does the trick. Now, what if we get a pore, the first protopore? Well, it might have to have a, a foot that can stick into the membrane, but that foot could be composed of any number of, say, nine sequences of monomers. But they had to be there to give you basically the polarity for that foot to stick in there. So the replicator's job there isn't so tough either. So it can have a higher error rate to make that little inefficient pore just good enough to do its job. So in the protobiological world, in the progenian, where life is emerging, this this epoch of life's emergence, we don't have to have uh, high fidelity replicators to get the system going. And because we have trillions of experiments going, hammering away at that selective barrier, hammering away, and the whole system's already stacked up. It's already stable. It already has pores, and it already has a primitive form of metabolic energy capture. 
it's just cranking away. So that progenote, that material is already able to grow. It's already able to capture energy, material, and grow. So it's truly exhibiting the properties of life, but in no way is efficient replication needed to get it to that phase. It's now at this level. And from this level, more efficient replicators can then start to emerge. When you get that first beautiful autocatalytic set closure, and you get more precision. But you can see, Jim, how it would stack up. It's doing just a good enough job, just a good enough job. Now it's getting more fine-tuned. Now it's getting more fine-tuned. And because you have a community that's trying to get across the selective barriers, you have what Stuart Common calls an exploration of phase space done on a massive scale in a single microgram of lipid and several quadrillion polymers that you could do in a system you can hold in your hand that's combinatorially going through. Literally, you could do it on your kitchen stovetop. You are holding in your little frying pan, and we've done this in frying pans on stovetops because it's just like any other laboratory equipment. We did this before we went to New Zealand. You are creating a combinatorial system that is so powerful, that is capable of functional discovery explorations of phase space, and potentially this pre-evolution. But the replicator only has to do a job that's suited to that stage, that phase, and it will create the substrate or the platform for the next more efficient replicator to come. And having a population, having cycling, having lots of tries will get you over that eigen error threshold. I'd like to see the math on that. We'll talk soon about the Fermi paradox and a typical 12-year-old nerd, I was sure there had to be hundreds of thousands of intelligent species in the galaxy. I mean, just read Asimov and Heinlein, right? But as I got older and started learning about things like the air catastrophe, I, I am now at the point of agnosticism. It's just possible that that climbing mountain probable to get to the high fidelity, really high fidelity, you know, three or four errors per billion, which is really remarkable in advanced life, may have been so damn implausible. It only happened once in the history of the universe, or at least the galaxy. And we just don't know. That's the thing that's interesting. But we're going to have the possibility of finding some evidence to repudiate that hypothesis. Before we go to Fermi paradox and astrobiology, let's do a short dive into the actual experiments that are being done to affirm or disaffirm the warm pool hypothesis. Because as you point out, these things can be done without too much expensive apparatus. Who's doing what? Just a you know quick survey and what are they finding out? Oh gosh, there's so many teams now. For example, up at McMaster University in Canada, uh, the Origins Institute built a custom half-million-dollar chamber called the Planet Simulator. And it looks like a glorified pizza oven, but it has a dome on top. They can introduce any atmosphere they want. Uh, they can put in UV radiation. They can put in moisture, and they can do wet-dry cycling in the simulation of an, of an atmosphere of a world, of an herbal world, let's say. And they can also do X-ray diffraction onto mineral surfaces where they've dried down. And with that X-ray diffraction, they can determine that there are structured polymers there, oligonucleotides, for example, through X-ray confirmation right in situ, right in the situation of the simulation itself. 
brilliant work, breathtaking work. And if we zoom over to Seattle, to University of Washington, Roy Black's group is doing an, another aspect of that. They're saying if peptides, little strings of amino acids, are attached to membranes, what happens? Well, they stabilize vesicles against flocculation, against basically falling apart. But what they're now proposing is that membranes that had lots and lots of polymers attached to them create a co-localization. So instead of stuff floating around in solution and trying to get together, now they're on highways of membranes, they're colliding in a two-dimensional medium, and they're going to get together a lot more easily. So the whole co-localization story uh, behind what we're calling a progenitor is being really powerfully worked on at University of Washington. And then down at Georgia Tech, the Center for Chemical Evolution and Nick Hud's group, amazing work on wet-dry cycling, creating what are called depsy peptides, perhaps an early form of peptides. They're looking for also informational molecules. They're also using uh, wet-dry cycling. And then all across the world, there are teams going to Ladakh in India, going to Rotorua in, in New Zealand to do hot spring-based work out there in the, the real wilds of, of the work. And then, of course, at University of Cambridge, using UV light, this is uh, Matt Powner and John Sutherland, using UV light to get from nucleobases, which were available from meteorite sources, to nucleotides that then can form polymers at University of, of Cambridge. And it goes on and on. There's group after group. Uh, in Oslo, there's a group doing studying how lipids form these re-complex compartments. And they're discovering that tethers form between a lipid mass in the gel fades, in the sludge. There are tethers that cause material to go back and forth in almost a physical network space. And that's the group at, at University of Oslo. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of good work. Maybe somebody will stumble into the protocell level at least at some point. Do you see that in the near horizon or is that still years and years out? Well, a lot of the work coming out of the Shostak lab at Harvard and uh, researchers like Irene Chen, who's now at UCLA, they're doing protocell work. So they're actually making artificial protocells, putting enzymes into them, having them basically compete with other protocells for membranous material. In fact, Irene's work 10 years ago as a student, as a PhD student, was to show that you can have protocells take amphiphiles, take lipids away from other protocells if they have a polymer inside, and it doesn't really matter what polymer it is. So artificial protocells, synthetic biology approaches to designing protocells and then watching them, watching catalytic reactions happen inside a simple protocell, not in a, a derivative of a living cell. So Jack's group is, is sort of took the lead on, on that years ago. Very cool. This is what I love to see in science where theory and experiment are working together, right? You know, experiment without theory is wandering in the wilderness. Theory without experiment is blue sky hypothesizing. We call it hand waving. It's fun to do. Exactly, right? It's fun to do. One of the things the Santa Fe Institute, you know, 
we have to work hard with our theorists to make sure they stay in touch with experiment and data. And I'd say they're pretty good at it. So that's a good thing. So thank you very much for this tour of the cutting edge, warm pond, revitalized theory. It's been wonderful. I learned some new things here, particularly about the eye evolution. I'm going to dig into that. You have to send me a paper or two on that one. I mean, that was an eye-opener for me. Let's move on now and talk just briefly. We're you know, probably already over our time, but that's all right. Time's cheap. I'm retired. What the hell, right? And about the Fermi paradox and the astrobiological implications of your hypothesis. One thought I had while I was reading your papers was, hmm, even as soon as our ability to take a look at Mars carefully and Europa or in Subilis, that's how you pronounce it, might provide us a pointer to who's right on this one, right? If it turns out there was life, we find life signatures or existing life under the surface of Mars, that's at least a finger pointing in your direction, right? Mars was wet and then it dried out. Sounds pretty similar. On the other hand, if we find life or life signatures on Europa, or, you know, a world where no light could have penetrated the ice, it all had to happen, it's chemistry in the dark, then that would be a pointer in favor of the other theory, the deep ocean vent theory. Does that make sense to you? Yes. And in fact, in our article published this summer called Orability, basically worlds in which life can start, we identified 28 factors that we think have to be present for the chemistry to get going. This is a little independent on whether they'll find life signatures. So, for example, Enceladus, which is a small moon of Saturn, it's under a 20 to 30 kilometer ice shell, and you have a very cold ocean. But we know some of the contents of the ocean because of geysers coming up through cracks of the ice on the South Pole, and the Cassini mission flew through them. Just an amazing achievement that we were able to get some of the chemical composition of those geysers. And there are missions planned there and to Europa. And of course, the Dragonfly mission to Titan, but that's a very different environment. And so it's like the most dramatic Hollywood thriller in that you have these two competing hypotheses that are very exciting and billions of dollars of space missions hang in the balance and the results hang in the balance. What we would suggest is keep an open mind because if we find evidence for life under the ice at Europa, it may have been that it was inoculated with bacteria that might have started on Mars or Earth. We just don't know until we get a full organism. What we believe and what we propose is those worlds are not urable, but they're certainly habitable, but they may be sterile. So there are three words for you. I love that new model, Eurable. That's a really good concept. That word has added to my hierarchical complexity of how I see the universe. You're the first podcaster to utter it because it's uh, only two months old. It's a newborn word. I love it. That's a great opportunity. Thanks for being the first guest on a podcast to talk about the concept. And so Mars, not urable today, but the hypothesis it was in the past, right? We have some reason to believe it had a much thicker atmosphere, and we know it had surface water, whether it had a standing ocean or not, I think it's still an open question. But it may have been urable in the past. In fact, we all know the hypothesis is maybe Earth's life evolved first on Mars, then traveled to Earth on meteorites. And if we could find any existing biosignatures enough to look at the DNA or the metabolisms, we might be able to tell. There's two different answers. One, same life, 
two different planets, right? Which is very interesting in itself and one of the great scientific discoveries of all time. But even more interesting would be two different lives, completely chemically incompatible with each other. And we just don't know. We will find out fairly soon if there's any life at all. Of course, the third answer might be the most likely, which is, nope, never was life, isn't life. Yeah, and here is something to think about, which was another incredible needle in the haystack moment. So it was in the late 2000s, like 2007 or 8, the Spirit rover was crunching along in the surface of Mars. One of its wheels got jammed, probably a stone stuck in it, and it became a trowel. And toward the end of the mission, it was driving along through an area called Columbia Hills near an outcrop called Home Plate. And I remember the announcement of this. It was just so exciting. And it dragged through the soil, and it turned up what looked like white powder, which wasn't snow. It was opaline silica. It was the silica, the sinters that form around hot springs. And by accident, they discovered a 3.7 billion-year-old preserved Yellowstone on Mars. And so in its remaining life, the Spirit rover imaged the area and found what looked like very close to the digitate silica little uh, finger-like rocks that you would find near hot springs in New Zealand or in El Tatio, Chile, where these, these digitate rocks are infused with microbiota. And the microbiota, literally, as they form by water wicking away and silica being left, becoming a mineral, the microbiota are in there shaping how those things turn out. And so we literally have a picture of a hot spring on Mars, which if it was on Earth would preserve life very well, be a strong biosignature. We need to go back to that location. Those are the rocks we need to actually do biodetection because those are the rocks that if we were walking out in the Pilbara or we were walking near a hot spring, we would pick those rocks up thin slice them and look for microbial chemical traces. or and, and so that's the exciting news. We already found a hot spring on Mars that could have biopreservation from right about the right era as Mars was drying out. Wow. I did not know that. That is big news. I mean, I, I, hopefully we'll get our shit together and get back to that spot and take a look. That's kind of nice that we actually are able to zero in on, you know, a very plausible spot to take a first look rather than have to, you know, look around a big planet. And of course, even Venus could have had life earlier. It may have had a herbal period early on. And again, and, you know, some people say, hey, there's a warning. What happens when you pump too much CO2 into your atmosphere, right? Because CO2 levels are lower. Venus, it would be hotter than the Earth. It wouldn't be the hellish place that it is today. You know, it's got, was it, 25, 30% CO2, maybe more than that in its atmosphere. So anyway, let's move on to a last question. I pondered this and I couldn't come up with anything useful. You as a much deeper thinker on the question may be able to. As you well know, the new space telescope and other soon-to-come space instruments are going to be able to start doing spectrographic analysis on the atmospheres of exoplanets around other stars. And there's many hypotheses about what might constitute biosignatures. Do you have any thoughts on whether these kinds of remote sensing will, one, tell us anything about whether life exists, and two, whether they'll provide anything useful to distinguish between the two hypotheses? 
Well, in terms of the biosignatures in the atmosphere, that's, of course, methane is a major biosignature. And yet methane sources that are whiffs of methane that have been detected in Mars's atmosphere may have geological sources, geochemical sources. So again, that's out of my department. But when we meet with our colleagues who are working on exoplanets, who are working on the Kepler data, who are working, we will be working with James Webb, and who are also doing an amazing job of modeling virtual worlds. They're creating these hypothetical planets. We developed the urability framework for them, basically saying those worlds, of course, may be habitable in the TRAPPIST-1 system, for example, those wonderful lineup of planets. Around the little red star, right? The little red star with very, very low energy output. And what we can do now, and this is what some of our students are working on, and what we, as we meet our exoplanet colleagues and say, for the first time, we can give you a framework with these 28 factors that if it was applicable to your modeled world around TRAPPIST-1, would give it a score, an urability score. Can it start life? Of course, if life arrived there from elsewhere, that's another, another question. Can it be sustained possibly? But the urability of those worlds can now be scored with, we have a box now to put a, a framework around it. And this goes back to Frank Drake and the Drake equation. Famous Drake equation. The famous, in, in a sense, this interview is in the memory of Frank Drake because he, he passed away. He passed from this earth a few weeks ago. But if you look at the Drake equation, there's the FL, the factor, which is the number of worlds that can start life. And so that's one of the important factors. The next one along is the one that can, where complex life emerges, multicellularity. And then the next one along is where intelligence, so, you know, technological civilizations can emerge, et cetera. But what we're starting to propose to our colleagues is that the assumption that microbiota, bacteria, something like a bacterium emerges easily in, in these environments is not a necessarily strongly supported assumption. And that bacteria may be hard. They may be as hard as getting to Nick Lane, who describes the transition to eukaryotic life. That was a hard transition. That happened, took several billion years to get to the point where eukaryotes, big cells that had organelles. And we still don't know how it happened. You know, that's still a gigantic mystery. And again, it's another one of these pruners on the Drake equation that may mean that we're unique. And that the transition, if we were talking about the progenian epoch, which is not geological, but a chemical biological epoch from the self-assembling little protocells in these watery environments, all the way to the first microbial mat where the sludge turns into more of a living sludge and is able to colonize, that that transition, if you break it down into the parts, it's a vast chasm of happenstance, of the exploring of phase space, of happy accidents, of an incredible amount of tries and retries, extinctions, failures, and restarts over and over and over again. It's not it's not a given that you're going to get to a protocell which becomes a living cell able to divide itself and push its genetic material into daughter cells that are then viable. That's basically the transition from the progenian into the precambrian. That would be the transition. So here's an example of 
how hard this is and how fun it is to do thought experiments in this space, in this chasm, going across this chasm. What would possess a protocell to evolve the tools or somehow combine the previous tools to do a division? That's the D polymer for dividing, duplication, dividing, the D polymer, which is a, a really a complex set of polymers to do that job. And you have to find uh, selective barriers that make that come into being because in a non-teleological approach, which we're taking here, uh, there isn't a goal or a design uh, objective. There isn't a blueprint saying, now we have to learn how to divide. It just happens. And so one can say, what are the selective pressures in the late progenian? Just as things could learn to divide on their own inside their communal complex. And it turns out one of them, it came to me a few years ago, was trash. If you couldn't get rid of the trash that accumulates in your house, you know, in your bathroom, in your kitchen and whatnot, your house would become unlivable. But what do we have as a technique to do that? We have garbage bags and sewer systems, and we put it all and we put it out on the curb. And so it keeps our environment of our home livable. Well, in the progenian period with protocells, there's no active pores to, to cycle stuff out. That's a high-tech thing. But there is trash collection, and it's the pinching off of what are called exosomes or little liposomes that with a simple protein you can pinch off. And this is a very common thing in living cells today. Liposome compartments, exosomes are just everywhere, full of cargoes of various things, some of it trash. So you could imagine that a selective barrier that those things are pushed up against is the accumulation of byproducts and trash and stuff that if they could get rid of it, it would mean that they were more robust, therefore it would be selected and amplified. And at the late progenian, perhaps this budding off of trash compartments got tied together with the division of the whole compartment at the very moment when the genetic material was present on either end of the wobbling vesicle. And so you could see that great moment where the wobbling vesicle wobbles apart under timed control just as the contents were duplicated. And now you have the transition to the linear descent of genes rather than its complete horizontal sharing in the wet-dry cycling. And now all the proteins and DNA and RNA are being made in solution. They don't require drying down because enzymes have emerged and you have the transition from the protocell community to the living microbial community. And it happens bit by bit. So, so a lot of cell divisions fail. Doesn't matter because they're inside a communal complex. So a cell division can be tried and fail and won't kill the whole organism because it's sitting in its communal sludge. And that was one of the great insights we had early on is that the community, the niche, the niche in which all these things are emerging is a supportive matrix. It's a surround, it's the progenitor, which nurtures and basically protects this process of biology. It's the very first ecosystem. And working with colleagues in Oxford, John Odling Smee, we're writing a book chapter for MIT Press, which is about that niches came first, that the sludge is the first niche that begets the ability of life to emerge within it. And one other little point that it blew my mind when I first thought of it, I asked the question, did life emerge from a simple environment or a complex one? And this is at the very edge of complexity theory. 
and biology. And there's a metaphor for you, which is if you go into an inventor's workshop and you see their little machine that they're trying to make this like an efficient, like a vacuum cleaner, like a Dyson vacuum cleaner, the workshop is full of parts, bins and shelving of super huge number of parts. And 1,200 prototypes that didn't work. Yeah, and a million parts that may never been used in a prototype. And the, the inventor's workshop is the model, I believe, for the progenitor workshop that begets life. In that in order to get a simple, efficient set of circuits going and a protocell to a living cell, you need a huge surround of a larger number of building blocks to get that selection to work. And this is at the very nub where complexity theory meets biology. So this is really interesting in that I'm going to, again, put words in your mouth, so spit them out if I'm going too far here. But there had to have been a quite rapid increase in complexity from physics just prior to that complexity being mined to create biology. Is that what you're trying to say? That is the most beautiful telling of this I've ever heard, Jim. Okay. There's a bump. Now, consider, what is that bump made out of? If you cycle gram quantities of that lipid membrane and put a bunch of Bragg's amino acids from a, from a bottle or nucleotides together, and you make a sludge that's like a cubic centimeter, and some of it has polymers, you cycle it a number of times, you have made something more complex, potentially, than the planet that it sits on. There are more distinct objects there, distinct volumes, motion and combinatorial complexity in that little cube of ignoble sludge than potentially the, the landmass it sits on. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really important idea that there was some form of complexity bootstrap and life was along the way, but it wasn't the beginning. We tend to think of life as being that bootstrap, but your hypothesis is not bad that it could very well have been that there was a necessary exponential increase in complexity in the chemical, physical domain before you had enough piece parts in the mad scientist workshop to create life. That's it. And prior to this idea, which we're putting out in this new chapter called The Progenitor, the substrate in which life can emerge, which will guide hopefully all future experiments. Prior to this, our colleagues have been doing individual down to equilibrium chemical experiments and very simple protocells sort of on their own. And when you ask the colleagues, do these things wind down to equilibrium? They say, of course they do. You know, we get a certain number of products. Is this sufficiently complex? Is a protocell in dilute solution with a few things in it sufficiently complex for life to emerge? And they would say, of course it's not. We're just trying to show one step or something. So what we go back to them and say, we're all in agreement. We need a substrate that is sufficiently complex. And what about this? And this is realistically, plausibly formed by meteoritic organics or organics from other sources. And you can make them in five minutes. And in fact, uh, the experiments Dave and I are doing in the lab now, we're literally doing polymerization in half an hour of a large number of short RNA polymers with the lipid and ligation and elongation going on all at the same time. So the stuff is cheap to do. 
it's easy to cycle, and then it's tough to analyze because what you're looking at in your blob in your hand went from a simple bunch of building blocks now to something that's gigantically complex. So how do you pull it? Do you use HPLC? Can you really see them? Do you use nanopore sequencing? Do you spin them down into a pellet and just measure the amount of polymer? That's what we're doing. And then we'll go on to nanopore sequencing, which we can sequence those little polymers. And then what if the polymers start doing jobs? How do we know they're doing jobs? Well, the only way to know right now is to see that the number of protocells and the mass of the gel phase, that progenitor grows over time. Exactly. If there's a net metabolitic output, right, that's what you'd be looking for. So now to the Fermi paradox, which is I know you where you wanted to get. This will be our exit question. Now, you know more about this than anybody I've ever talked to, because you think about it both in terms of you understand evolutionary computation, the mathematics, the error catastrophe. You understand a tremendous amount about various pathways, the origin of life. So what's your probability that we humans are the only general intelligence in the galaxy at this time? What I would propose is a sort of new Drake equation that looks backwards in time. So you, you start with the intelligent human technological civilization and you go through the number of fortuitous catastrophes, combinations, the fact that our planet had to maintain liquid water for 4 billion years on its own, which is not a given, we are now finding, all the way through complex organisms, fungi, things like that, back through eukaryotes back through the microbial community, mat community, which is still like the predominant form of life and will be in the universe, all the way through the chasm, the molecular combinatorial chasm to that first little sludge in the pool, and you create a new Drake equation. And you say, what is required as a selective barrier for two changes in the environment, dumb luck, and you could come up with a reverse Drake equation all the way from life's origins and all the way even to the, the planetary milieu, the types of worlds, the arable worlds argument. And that from, from that, uh, this is a Brownlee and Ward's rare earth approach. This is a, a brilliant bunch of work, but could we do a new Drake equation? We may be going down back to SETI Institute to do another talk on urability as applies to Frank Drake and the Drake equation. And what I'd like to do is propose the reverse Drake equation because we've got more data points on the incredible rarity, quite plausibly, of the rise of Homo sapiens at the end of the game. And so we could, we could get some numbers, we could get some boundary conditions and at least a working framework to take, on, take off where Frank left off or where SETI is currently working. My prediction is... If you add the factor, if you add urability, which gives you a, a lot more solid thing to argue that, and that also if you add the proposal that bacteria may be hard, microbes may be hard, you now have a more realistic picture. Because if microbes are hard, that produces the inventory of worlds where microbes can start. And worlds die out from underneath microbial uh, emergence, Mars probably, and so Martians are always going to be halophilic extremophiles in the rock. If they exist at all, right? If they exist at all. So there is no future past. So the majority of life in the universe is halophilic microbes in rocky crust. If it exists at all. Even if it turns out you can cross the hard jump to bacteria, getting any further may be very difficult. 
So my, my prediction is, is as we open our minds to this reverse Drake equation idea, and then we factor in the sheer number of exoplanets, we can put those two things together like this. We can stack them up, and then we have to classify the exoplanets as erable or not. And we have to factor in what if bacteria emerge fortuitously somewhere and they were able to spread. Well, that gives you a little bit. Distribution always gives you a little bit of a leg up. And then all the other factors for complex life, we're going to emerge out of a, a decadal process of saying, my prediction is we are extremely rare, extremely rare, and that technological civilizations that are sort of out there looking and even asking the questions of their own origin are, are vanishingly rare and probably separated by great distance. And we may be effectively alone but we might have a lot of microbial cousins around on worlds that no longer carry the capacity to carry them to complex organisms. But it's an exquisitely uh, beautiful, rare, and unlikely occurrence that we exist at all. And that could be a subject for uh, a subsequent podcast. Does that give us a real sense of responsibility I argue this all the time. It's why I say the Fermi equation is the second most important question in science. The first, people always say, well, it's the first. You say it's the second. The first is, why is there anything, right? We're a long way from being able to answer that one. But yeah, if we are it, or effectively it, you know, let's say at the galaxy level, then the responsibility on us not to fuck up is gigantic, right? If it turns out there's 100,000 general intelligences in the galaxy, and we fuck up ourselves, frankly, oh well. But if we're the only one, maybe the only one in the universe, and we have two choices to become like the Martian bacteria and irrelevant, or to bring the universe to life, to blow that opportunity is a crime of the largest imaginable magnitude. And like a Hollywood car chase, you might ask toward the end of the movie, why now? You know, why us, why now? Well, as James Lovelock, who also passed away this year, pointed out in his book, Rough Ride to the Future, there's this beautiful chapter saying, hey, fellow humans, this thing, which I call the Venus Terminator, is approaching the Earth. The line in the solar system where Venus was just too close to the sun, so its atmosphere boiled off and became a hothouse hell, that Terminator is very close to us. So with 100, he, he predicts 100 million years to have a 3% increase in incident solar radiation when we're across that terminator means that the atmosphere has to have zero CO2 in it to prevent a runway greenhouse. So it isn't billions of years for complex life in the future. It's, it's hundreds of millions. It's a fraction of a percent of the history of life on Earth remains the bump where complex life can, can exist. And you can see this, according to Lovelock, by the belt deserts. So the belt deserts around north and south are evidence that Gaia is failing. Even before, we're products of that because we were cast out into East Africa with a Rift Valley into a desert drying environment, a wet dry cycle, which forced us to become who we were or are. And so that the evidence of those belt deserts is a biosphere that's losing its ability to support plants on land. So you have glaciation and then you have desertification. Glaciation, it's a swing in the pendulum. And with climate change, we're pushing more energy in 
but it's an it's a world that's dying. It's in late middle age or early old age, as far as complex life is the case. And so there isn't anything to follow us. So if there is a life force, is there is a a dictum or a drive to reproduce and to carry on, it may be getting pretty intense because the whole planet's about to undergo this decline. So it's the last time to do the act, the ultimate act, as it was with protocells, even though it wasn't teleological, was to carry on and divide. Maybe it's our job. We are evolved to create new biospheres and spread the jewels of life in more than one place because this world is is a womb, but it is also a tomb. Yeah, I like to say it, bring the universe to life. That's actually the purpose of humanity, especially if we're alone. Well, Bruce, let's wrap it there. This has been one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a damn long time. Thank you, Jim. It's an absolute pleasure. You are one of the few people on the planet in four billion years of evolution with which we can truly geek out on the origins question. (laughs) It's been great. I think the audience will love it. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.